Hi, Roy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rani. Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And to anyone who might not know your name, uh, you know, Roy, last time I checked, you have over 270,000 uh, citations on Google Scholar. Uh, so you've been prolific, uh, to say the least. Um, so it's a, a big pleasure. And for anyone who might not know you and your research, could you give the audience a little bit of background on who you are and what your research has focused on through the years? All right. Well, um, un unusually, most social scientists focus on, focus on a particular area and uh, collect data on that and contribute that. I'm more of a generalist. I want to figure out the big picture. I mean, I've done certainly a lot of very specific <laughs> laboratory work, too. Uh, but uh, I came into psychology from philosophy and because of an interest in the big questions. I might have majored in that, except my parents said there was no money in, in philosophy. They didn't think I could uh, <laughs> make a living that way. Um, and so what I've done is moved around from one topic to another, uh, mostly reviewing other people's work. Uh, you can't really collect data on a lot of different topics. Uh, so uh, my lab work stayed in a few major tracks. Uh, I would roam from one area to another. Uh, one plan was to tackle the big philosophical questions uh, with social science data. Uh, so I had a book on how people find meaning in life and uh, just completed a draft of one on uh, scientific theory of free will. Uh, there's one on human nature. Uh, there's the one on men and women. Uh, there's a, a variety of others in there. Why is there evil? I did that. Um, and so... My goal is to figure out human social life as much as I can before I drop dead. There's, you know, too much information to uh, <laughs> to get in one lifetime, but I can get a lot, and uh, I aim to get close. Uh, I had to accept things don't always work out the way I hoped they would be. Uh, reality is not the way we fondly imagine it should be. So if you want to get to the truth, you got to revise your opinions, and you got to accept some things that you don't really like. I don't even really like all my own theories uh, because, uh, uh, you know, some of them are just not the way. But, you know, when the data say it's this way, then I tend to go along with that. Um, well, I think that's, you know, in the true spirit of science. Uh, we might start with a certain intuition, but, you know, being able to accept the data as it is. And I think you've uh, you've done a good job so far of uh, answering a lot of these questions. Uh, so you've written several books, but the one that I would love to focus on today is called, Is There Anything Good About Men? How Cultures Flourish by Exploiting Men. So this very much surprised me that you wrote this book already in 2010. So that gave me the impression that you were already sensing this kind of maybe anti-male narrative in our culture, um, you know, over a decade ago. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, certainly it's part of the big picture. Uh, gender is a problematic area to study because there's a lot of bias, a lot of suppression of dissent, a lot of censorship. Um, but I can't really ignore it. It's such a big part of everybody's life every day. Uh, that I had to to wade into it. Uh, I remember a colleague remarking that uh, all the research reports and the media reports about whenever there's a difference between men and women, it's always reported either 
in favor that women are better or that there's no difference. As he put it, the men are never allowed to win. Um, and, you know, ask, ask your listeners to try to think when is the last time you heard a news story saying, oh, men are doing this much better than women. Um, that's, that's very hard uh, to, uh, to That's get. almost uh, taboo today. Yes. And, uh, and that's very one-sided. I mean, it's just implausible evolutionarily. If, if there's one way that's better to be a man and women share so many of their genes, everybody's going to be that way. But I believe in trade-offs. A lot of things in the world are trade-offs, many more than we want to admit. Um, you, I mean, even social policy, you solve one problem and you create another in many cases. Um, and so uh, it's just implausible that one gender would be overall better than the other. And it's probably doubly implausible that that gender would be women, given that civilization was almost entirely created by men. Um, so... Uh, again, I see the world in, in terms of trade-offs and, and evolution will preserve a trade-off if, you know, a trade is better for one thing, but worse at something else. And then it can sort. And, and we see, you know, throughout nature, I mean, there's this belief going around in some circles that there are no differences between males and females other than stereotypes. And maybe they acknowledge the sex organs. Uh, but, uh, um, but that's just not not correct and not sound and you know and anywhere in the animal kingdom and and certainly in our species there are uh there are differences uh, i have to say overall again it's implausible that one gender would be better uh than the other uh because uh again if it were, if there were just a better way to be everybody would be that way um right but could you tell us a little bit about this idea of trade-offs? Because I think it's really at the heart of this idea that there isn't one sex that's better than the other, but we are better at certain things, right? So what is the idea of trade-offs here? Um, well, uh, well, let's look at this. There's a great paper recently came out by uh, a few people at Harvard that I, I quite admire. Uh, the, uh, one of the keys to the psychology of women is is a, a self-protective orientation, that women are more upset about getting dirty, um, <laughs> more picky about what they eat, less prone to take all sorts of risks. Um, you can watch the funny shows where people do crazy things and often risk hurting themselves, and it's, it's mostly men doing them. Right, thinking uh, of jackass women, and things like that. Right, women seem to have you more common sense in that way. And is that better? Well, um, it's certainly better in a sense that it, you know, women live longer and, and protect their, their children and so on. Uh, but the lack of risk-taking also undercuts exploration and innovation, uh, trying new things. So there's, there's a trade-off. Uh, um, the, the riskier male uh, approach to life uh, leads to more disasters and, and setbacks and things, but it also discovers new things and produces uh, more more progress and innovation. Uh, in fact, when that, that article was covered by the, the Harvard people, I just had a paper accepted with some people I was working with where they, they had done these studies with a whole bunch of innovations and had people, you know, they, they made up some new innovations and, and wanted people to look at the plus and the minuses of them. So they rated everything on a 
scale of the, the future consequences of this will be minus 100, totally negative, to plus 100, totally positive. And there were a variety of, of innovations. And they were testing something else about uh, about that. But I, I thought, oh, we do have male or female data in there. Let's go check. Uh, and sure enough, across all the conditions and all the experiments, the average male rating of the innovation was about plus 25 and the woman, average female was right about zero. So women are more attuned to the downside of even these these made-up experimental uh, innovations. Um, and to me, that's a clear a clear trade-off that uh, you play it safe and you take care of yourself. And, uh, and, and nature and society both believe that female lives are more valuable than male lives. Uh, we don't see any movies with with a dozen women sacrificing themselves to save some man's life. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen right. but the reverse. And there are good biological reasons for that because uh, we evolved to compete in groups. And if you lost half of your men in a battle or a catastrophe or something, uh, well, the next generation could still be full size as long as the men go around and service all the women. But if you lost half your women, uh, the next generation is going to be much smaller and it will take many generations even to recover to where you were. So uh, on that basis, uh, um, in, in nature, again, selecting in favor of women being more more cautious and self-protective. So that's, that's the kind of thing I see uh, as a trade-off. In the book you mentioned, I said uh, um, the most underappreciated uh, gender difference, although I have another candidate for that now, but the most underappreciated gender difference um, has to do with how many, what our ancestors were. Um, you know, when you ask people what percent of our ancestors were women, and uh, and they solved this with DNA research just before I wrote that book about 20 years ago, um, and it was two, about two-thirds of our ancestors were women. And People are surprised, right. ordinary people, they think it should be 50-50 because equal numbers are born. But remember, to be an ancestor, you didn't just have to live. You had to reproduce and pass on your genes all the way down. You have to have somebody walking the earth today who is a direct descendant of you. Um, and so uh, twice as many uh, women as men. Uh, when biologists hear that fact, they're surprised it isn't even more extreme. Uh, because in many populations, only a few of the males reproduce, but all the females do. Um, so that that leads into the risk-taking uh, difference, because if you just go along with the crowd and do what everybody else does, uh, if you're a woman, well, you, someone will come along, have sex with you, and you'll have babies, and you, your genes will continue. But the majority of men do not reproduce. Uh, and so if you just go along and play it safe and do what everybody else does, for a man, it's a losing strategy. We're descended from the men who took chances and we're lucky. <laughs> right. Right, right. So this all ties in. This was a fascinating fact, by the way. Uh, I didn't know this beforehand. But how does this tie in to males' sex drive and their uh, drive to compete? All right. I think it leads very strongly to both. Because remember, only a few of the males, um, if you if you Take the number two-thirds to one-thirds uh, from the DNA research. So uh, roughly, let's say, throughout history, twice as many women as men were reproduced. So um, so for the man, the odds are, and maybe you don't care about reproducing, maybe you don't want, but 
the traits that cause you to reproduce are the ones that are carried forward into the psychology of today's men and women. Um, so uh, for the, the men, the odds were against you, so you need to compete. Uh, also in terms of sex, uh, well-documented differences in, in sex drive and in, in just total desire and in uh, desire for multiple partners and so on. Um, but again, if uh, you know you have a chance to have sex, then you say, oh, I don't know, I got a headache. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to be a winning strategy. Not for a man. If you might miss your only chance. Many, many men have gone through life with very few opportunities for sex. Uh, whereas for a woman, again, uh, you'll probably have another opportunity. I think uh, right, David Buss has uh, sort of analyzed this in terms of how how fast when two people are becoming evolved, a man and a woman specifically, when do they decide to have sex? And he said, in a sense, it's always rational for the woman to uh, postpone or make improve a little more. He's he's giving right. her put on the brakes. Uh, yeah, whereas for the man, uh, that's a losing strategy to say no. You want to leap at the chance. There's other research on the regrets people have about their lives uh, when they get older. Um, and specifically sexual regrets and regrets, and there's a big gender difference of sins of commission, sins of omission. The men are sorry for the chances that they missed. You know, oh, I realize afterwards that she was willing to have sex and she was too subtle, and I didn't pick up the hints. And oh, I wish I'd done that. <laughs> uh, whereas the women more regret the things they did, and you know, I went to bed with so and so, and I wish I hadn't, and. I uh, sometimes retroactively erase uh, the memory. And <laughs> I think I think this does shed a lot of light, you know, on today's modern hookup culture and how there is a big mismatch between, you know, what is a preferential for men and what is for women. Uh, and I think the fact that you realize that there is this kind of, uh, you know, tendency for the uh, top 10% of men to get all the women yeah. paints monogamy in a better light, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> yes, the but, monogamy is presented as a gift to women, uh, but all else being equal, it, it seems women are probably better off in a polygamous society with more options. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't want to share my husband with anybody. Uh, <laughs> but, well, yes. and, but the yeah. thing is, even if you want a monogamous relationship, the woman is better off in a polygamous society because How come? How come there's a opinion? huge surplus of men because a few rich men marry lots of the women. So uh, women are in short supply. So you have, uh, they're much more precious and are able to set the relationship the way that you want. Okay. We're talking about operational yeah. sex ratios and the fact that when yeah. there are less women, they can... Uh, they can call the shots, so to speak, and kind yeah, of organize the, the dating market. That's right. Monogamy is a gift to the low-status men. I mean, look at who really benefit. It spreads the women around in the, in the cultures where polygamy, which is, I guess, most cultures in the history of the world up until the, the more modern era. Uh, the rich men would have multiple wives, and that meant lots of men would have none. And this goes back to why we're descended from a few men and a lot of women. Right, right. A contributing factor. Um and the, the shift to it. And there are other things that go with monogamy uh, or polygamy. 
that are, are, are problems, but in a pure... I, I do have a few questions for you on that uh, later okay. on, right. but I, I do want to get into this idea that this really was eye-opening for me. I'm a fan of, you know, Jungian thinking and in Jung, you know, we have mother nature. Okay. The nature is the feminine and we have father culture. And I never had a good explanation for why masculinity was associated with culture until I read your book. So can you tell us why men are those that created culture? Well, I've been thinking more about this recently since I wrote the book. And uh, um, uh, first of all, it, it, it just seemed to be a very strong empirical fact that uh, I, mean, you know, I have to realize to go back, or how to put it, uh, if civilization has existed for uh, 150,000 years, 140,000 was uh, hunter-gatherers. So that's what we evolved to do, to roam around in small nomadic groups uh, and, uh, and, and survive there. Um, and they were very egalitarian, which is an unusual thing. We evolved from animals who have dominance hierarchies where the, particularly the strongest male dominates and gets what he wants and, uh, stifles the others. But in the moving to the early humans, they created an equality. So all the men were equal, all the women were equal and the men and the women were pretty equal too. And observations of the hunter gatherers still alive in the world today, uh, seem to reinforce this, that the, the men's sphere and the women's sphere about equal. Everybody's respected. Nobody can set himself or herself above the others very much. Um, so, uh, so it was an even start. And yet then out of the men's sphere uh, evolved literature and art and philosophy and science and technology and military organization and governments and marketplaces and all that. And the women's sphere didn't really produce anything like that. And there's a little storing knowledge about plants and herbs and uh, uh, a few other things. You know, my take is this is the origin of gender inequality. It's not that the men banded together to to push the women down, this idea of patriarchy as a scheme system of oppression by men, I don't find any evidence that that's really true. It, it, it's very contrived and looks like an excuse that the, the women's movement made up to account for why the women hadn't really produced anything. And, um, but again, women are not geared toward collective working together, innovation, progress, uh, things like that. It's another one of the uh, the trade-offs. Women are wonderful for other things. Um, so, um, anyway, where were we? The, uh, the, the why men have created culture, essentially, and yeah. why that's the source of gender inequality. Yeah. Now, I have had continued to think about this and puzzle over it. To me, it's one of the big questions in, in the psychology of gender differences, why don't women work with women to produce progress? And if, if you're not convinced by the entire history of civilization, <laughs> um, there is a meta-analysis uh, combining the results of several hundred studies of mostly modern university students playing economic games where you choose whether to cooperate with someone or to be selfish or whatever. Um, somebody went through all those studies, which are not basically about gender, but reported the men and women differences. And Men cooperate with men, men cooperate with women, women cooperate with men. 
but women don't cooperate with women. That, that seems to fall apart uh, quite differently. My, my current take on this is sort of recognizing that another one of the key facts and underappreciated facts about the, the evolution of the human species is the converting the man into the provider role. The father is a provider. Because mm-hmm. this surprised me. None of the other apes care about being fathers. They, they don't love their children. They don't protect them. They don't provide for them. And especially providing on a daily basis meals for the mother of your children, who's, after all, just some gorilla you had sex with uh, five <laughs> years ago. Uh, the idea that you should feed her every day would be preposterous to any any gorilla, but it was essential to human evolution because that's what makes the bigger brain possible. Uh, the, the brain had to grow after birth, and you know, for culture, we needed a bigger, more right, intelligent right. brain, but you couldn't squeeze it out of the, the birth canal uh, without ruining the mother's body. So the, ch- the human has to be dependent, the human child, for many, many more years than your your chimpanzee. Anyway, the father into the uh, provider role. Uh, was a key step making human evolution possible. Um, and so, well, you think of the implications of that. It's basically doubling the workload. If a chimpanzee, you know, forages for three hours a day to feed it himself, um, now he's going to take on feeding a female and a couple children. And, the, you know, and the women did, the females do get uh, recruit. You know, to get some food, uh, do gathering, and, and often the food is more reliable uh, than the hunting. But protein is more important, uh, and so on. And, and the women don't bring in much uh, much protein. Right, and means- the fact that you know human uh, babies are born, you know, more fragile, and they have right. a a longer fetal yep. uh, period outside of the womb means exactly. that the mother needs to be, you know, she has her hands tied, so to speak. Yes. Yes, so getting the male into the provider role, uh, which means it's going to basically double his workload. And this is probably an incentive for the males, who are a lot of them are in the same position now, to work together, to cooperate, to create more resources. Um, so uh, that's why I think the men started, starting with the group hunting, uh, humans became the best hunters, not because of our or fangs or our speed or anything, but by group cooperation. And it was this working together to create more resources that I think led to all the all the other stuff, all the other innovations. So this point about, you know, I think in the social sciences for a long time, there was this misconception that women are more social. And, you know, men and women are social and we have each a need for belonging, but it's expressed in uh, very different ways. So, yes, yes, you... I, I remember reviewing a paper for a journalist. Was right after I published uh, an article, "The Need to Belong," arguing that it was pretty universal human human drive. And this article was going with this conventional wisdom that well, women are social, but but men really aren't. Um, and if you just look at one to one relationships, then women are more attuned to those. But if you look at being social in groups, almost everything in groups is more of a male thing. Uh, than a female thing. And uh, men learn to work together in groups and are happy with it. Uh, researching that, or even there are studies with 
in the laboratory where they have two kids playing together and they bring in a third and see if they let him in. Well, if it's two boys, they let yes. the third boy in. I uh, spoke to Joyce Benenson about this. Yes, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was yeah. the one I mentioned earlier uh, on the, uh, the, the the recent paper that protecting yourself and being cautious is a key to the, the psychology of, of women. Yeah, I, I really admire her work. Um, Same here. Um, so... The girls uh, didn't let the third one play, right? That was the... <laughs> yes. I, you know, I have to say this whole topic of cooperation is really interesting because I think that in the, you know, feminist movement, there's this misconception that we have this sisterhood, you know, and it's all accepting and all welcoming. And I wish that were true, but uh, women can be very difficult with one another. You know, there's a... No, um, I think say that, yeah. Yeah, right. So there's a, a very uh, a strong barrier to entry, kind of in terms of friendship and uh, creating coalitions and so on. And with men, you know, I observe them and it's almost effortless. Uh, and I, I really admire that. And I've uh, gone along, uh, you know, with uh, guys throughout my life because things are just, you know, more straightforward. It's, uh, uh, you know, you can make fun of each other and bounce back yeah. and uh, there's no hurt feelings that are, you know, that ruin the friendship. Yeah. Uh, so I think just understanding. I on, on, on yeah, yeah. one time, and at one point we collected all the jokes about men and women uh, that we could. And, oh, know, brilliant! Compare them, but one that uh, came to mind, which got to both of them, it said, "Men socialize by insulting each other, but they don't really mean it. Women <laughs> right, socialize right. by praising each other, but they don't really mean it either." <laughs> oh, well said. <laughs> well said. Yeah, you know, have you seen uh, the new movie Barbie? Did you? I have not. No. Uh, well, I don't know if you're missing anything, but it was such a they, their marketing was so good that I had to I had to see what all the fuss was about. And you know they painted Barbie Land, you know like the the women's land, as all the girls were just saying to each other like you are so beautiful, you are so amazing, you're so smart, you're you're the best. And you know they they painted like the the guys as these uh, very primitive baboons. Um, but, you know, I think it's just this uh, misconception that I hope to shed a little bit of light on because women do have this very much developed uh, sense of intimacy and, you know, one-to-one -one relationships. And yeah. we really know how to cultivate that. Uh, but we, we seek that in friendships. And sometimes that's hard with people who we're not related to. And on the other hand, men can organize in big groups and, you know, partner up and enter an organization uh, really uh, seamlessly. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, if we you know, yeah. want to, to reach some sort of equality, whatever kind of equality we think is, uh, uh, you know, is the right dose, uh, I think uh, appreciating uh, you know, what each side can bring uh, is important. Uh, I do, I do want to jump into uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which I thought was uh, very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, you know, you painted uh, this picture of the imaginary feminist when you used kind of, uh, you know, you illustrated this typical kind of backlash and arguments that you would get for uh, a lot of the points that you were making, which I, I found uh, hilarious. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is there aren't enough women CEOs, there aren't enough women in STEM and politics uh, and the natural sciences and, and so on. And... You know, why do you think that motivation and interest 
play a role here? And what would you say to the imaginary feminist, to this kind of popular trope that, you know, men are just oppressing us and there's a glass ceiling and uh, we need to get these numbers exactly equal? What would you say to that? Well, that's probably never going to happen. Uh, In fact, the more gender equality a society produces, the more different men and women become. This is one of the surprising findings of uh, recent research. I'm not sure it was out in when I had David the book. Geary's, right? Yeah. Um, so it allow in a traditional poorer culture, men and women are fairly similar. But as life gets better and women can do what they want, it turns out they want to be less similar to men. Um, People have looked, I mean, the women complain about, uh, the feminists complain about the lower salaries, that women earn less money. Uh, but uh, it's actually, it's no bias in the system. It's the choices uh, women make. Uh, I used to say to my in my class, uh, imagine you could have a very stressful job that was going to leave you angry and upset most days and interfere with your sleep and so on, but it would pay a really high salary. Would you take that job? Well, more men than women would take that job, uh, not least because your appeal to the other sex, uh, for the men, it's how much money you have, how much more in appearance, whereas earning more money doesn't really improve a woman's uh, uh, romantic uh, prospects, and in some ways it may reduce them, given that most couples mate that the man has has higher, so, you know, the David Buss showed this too. The women who were earning $100,000 only wanted to marry a man who was making at least one hundred fifty dollars or $200,000. Uh, yeah. And that narrows narrows the pool. Narrows so, the pool. So pursuing a high-earning job is uh, is not really helpful in, in that regard. And again, the difference between the group and the individual, this goes back to what I was suggesting about the evolution. The men taking on the provider role early in our species history had to figure out how to work together to produce more resources so that they weren't just spending all their their days working. So that became the thrust for the men. Once the men are producing more resources, the strategy for the woman is to attach herself to a man who's who's got them rather than, you know, in principle, the women could have started to work together too and produced more resources. And the idea that the men would have rejected them or, or opposed that I find preposterous. I mean, suppose the women had come up with some new weapon that the men could use in battle to uh, to defeat their enemies. Do you think the men would say, oh, no, we don't want this this weapon that the women came up with because we don't want women to produce anything? Well, they, they'd, they'd be losers. The other side, when their women did it, they would have the, have the weapon. Um, but again, it was the rational strategy for the woman to, to 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 focus on how does she get her resources, her food and shelter and so on, it's it's from the man, uh, and so learning how to be attractive to him and to recruit him into a long term relationship and manage that that becomes central to the psychology of women uh, instead of working together with other women for uh, creative producing more resources. Right, right. I think that. You know, just understanding this for young women today who, you know, being exposed to all of this very um, anti-male, very feminist jargon, uh, I think is unhelpful because we live in such an equal society. You know, 
it's it's the most equal of all societies and we have all the resources in the world and if you want a career you know go ahead no really no one is stopping you it's uh i think the misconception that men are in this boys club and constantly taking care of each other you know and keeping women down i think understanding that men are themselves competing uh, is really important to understand yeah. and i loved you know you mentioned nora vincent and right, um, yes. what was it? A self-made man, uh, self-made the name man, of her yeah. book. So can you tell us about that and what she found yeah, there? I was, I was talking about that. She was a, a, I guess she was a lesbian. Uh, but in any case, she was a, a tall, kind of mannish looking woman. And she thought, well, I'll go undercover as a man uh, for a year uh, and find out all these boys club advantages. And I'll write a real expose on how great uh men have it and she went there and she found no it was nicer being a woman in fact she cut it short uh <laughs> by six months or something uh because well you're men you're out there you have to compete have to take initiative have to do a lot of things um it's it's much nicer if you have a problem and you're a woman people want to come and help you with it you have the same problem if you're a man uh they recoil and you know want you to uh, deal with it yourself uh, so uh, the idea that there's this uh, cooperation among men uh, is absurd. And uh, you know, patriarchy, the idea that men exploit women, it's a, it's a convenient excuse uh, that the women's movement can use. But I don't see it has any basis in fact. In fact, I reflect on it personally. I'm, I'm 70 years old. Uh, I had a long life. I can't recall a single conversation with another man about how we could oppress women or keep <laughs> them down, either specific women or women in general. So if the patriarchy exists, they never reached out to me. There are lots of other opposite <laughs> conversations about how can we help women, how we help specific women, colleagues, junior students, you know, to do better. How can we give women more opportunities in our university? And lots of those conversations, but not a not a single one. So this I and most conspiracy theories are wrong, and yet. Uh, Researchers who study conspiracy theories are afraid to uh, attack the feminist theory of patriarchy or to discuss it, again, because of the suppression of dissent. And I have to say, too, when you suppress dissent, that really weakens science. It undermines the credibility of a field. And it's usually a sign that some powerful elite is protecting a false narrative. Uh, whether we go back to the Middle Ages, burning heretics at the stake right. to protect the government, or uh, or just during COVID, you know, for a while, if you suggested that maybe COVID had a human origin from that lab in, in China that it leaked out, oh, you'd be canceled and, and so on. But it, it turned out um, people were lying to protect a false, a false narrative. So you should be automatically suspicious of of the feminist doctrine because it, it survives very much by suppressing alternative views uh, as opposed to coming up with uh, with, with other evidence to uh, to make it a scientific argument. Absolutely. I think, you know, at the uh, core of it is a very anti-masculine approach, you know, seeing, uh, you know, men mm-hmm. as the enemy and this uh, anger that bubbles up and then this kind of paradoxical need uh, for women to try to be just like men 
You know, and I think one of the things that they got wrong was instead of raising the value of femininity itself, they try to get women to be just like men. And maybe, you know, what we needed as a society was a little bit more respect for, you know, femininity and feminine traits and, uh, you know, motherhood and uh, and so on. Uh, but I think that at the end of the day, when I hear uh, feminists, you know, fighting for our right to, you know, be just like men and be CEOs, I think that what I'm hearing is that you don't even respect femininity, you know, and you don't respect feminine traits. And I think that there's a, we're, we're caught in a web here and it's a, um, a difficult uh, web to untangle. Uh, but I think that this kind of, you know, research is really helpful. Uh, I'd love to segue into this idea of the male extremity pattern and what does it mean? And I think that alone can really explain why, you know, we have this illusion that all men are at the top, but really um, it's the variability uh, that we don't see, right, within men. Right. Um, so I've talked to a variety of biologists and others about this. Uh, apparently, it's true in a, a lot of species that, and, and a lot of different traits that men are just more variable uh, mm -hmm. than women. Uh, why it is isn't really clear. One argument is that the X chromosome, the female chromosome, has a backup. So if you have a mutation on one, the backup can take over. Interesting. Uh, whereas with the male, um, there isn't a backup, so the mutations will be there. It is... It is adaptive for nature to experiment more on males than females, to throw in more mutations, uh, because most, most genetic mutations don't turn out well. Uh, so what you want to do is flush that out of the gene pool right away. So you want someone with a weird genetic configuration, mostly, to not reproduce. And again, most men don't reproduce, and, and, and many other species too, most males don't reproduce. Uh, so if you get a mutation in the female, it's going to linger in the gene pool. And and conversely, uh, if you have a good mutation that makes you smarter or more verbal or better able to see or whatever, um, then you want it to spread through the gene pool. And again, uh, at the high end, males reproduce, you know, a few males reproduce a lot, They're, Males who have hundreds, even thousands of children, there are no women who have thousands of children. It's just biologically impossible. So uh, a good mutation will spread better if it's on the male. A bad one will be flushed out faster if it's on the female. So it makes sense uh, what the mechanism is, whether it's the, the chromosome or, uh, or something else. That's, uh, that's a little harder to say. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, for whatever reason, Men are more variable than women uh, in in intelligence and in behavior. I mean, the feminists complain about the uh, the senators being more men and, and and so on. But what about the homeless? There are a lot more homeless men than women. Uh, what about the prison population? A lot more men in prison. A lot more men are killed uh, along the way. So men outnumber women at both extremes, and and that's true. And things like height, where there's there is a mean difference. Men are taller than women, uh, but still, uh, and some women are taller than some men. But there's more variability around the male average than the female average. It's true with intelligence, where the mean is almost identical in adulthood, 
my friend's expert in intelligence say girls have higher intelligence growing up faster than the males and then the males catch up in the teen in the teenage years and forward very slightly ahead but the difference is so small it's completely meaningless what is meaningful is the uh, extremities um we know it best from the research on impaired the mental retardation uh as you go from mild to moderately to severely retarded the proportion of males increases uh, so the severely retarded or whatever the current term is, there'll be a lot more male. And it's the same at the genius level as you go from mild to moderate to genius level. There are certainly super genius women, uh, but not as many. Um, so nature rolls the dice with the male <laughs> more, right. more than the female. Right. I think it's important, you know, to understand what comes from nature itself Mm-hmm. And and what is socially constructed? And a lot of these things are just, as you said, the role of the die and the fact that we're built in certain ways and we have these trade-offs that we've evolved for. And understanding this, it's not that there is some big conspiracy. It's just that we do have more of this variability. And as you said, on average, there isn't much of a difference, but we might find yeah. more geniuses in men but also more on the low end. So I think that's really important yeah. to understand. I, I gotta say the first time I the first time I heard this idea was when I was a kid and, and my mother was a high school teacher. And you know, kids are always asking adults, who's smarter, boys or girls? Right. Um, my mother was a very thoughtful person and she looked at me and she said, Well, I find that the boys are more at the extremes, the super smart and the super dumb ones, and the girls are more clustered in the middle. Interesting. Uh, you had that intuition already. Back in 1965 or something. Um, so, uh, right. did you know masses of research data would confirm that in, in many different spheres? Yeah, I mean, sometimes common sense is, you know, in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you and have... There are plenty of women at both extremes, but there are more men. and, and, and just uh, Of course. More, and it's uh, understandable yeah. why, you know, in terms of the evolutionary trade-offs, why men would uh, be more variable, as you said. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I want to, uh, you know, take us to this point that you make in the book of how cultures exploit men and how culture regards men as expendable beings with disposable lives. And you give a really touching story uh, of your father. And, you know, as I read this, I I was uh, really touched because, I'm reading the story of the 17-year-old uh, soldier who's drafted into World War II. And at, at the beginning, you know, knowing of your background, I assume he's fighting on the American side. And then I realize he's fighting on the German side. And that really, you know, uh, strikes home because we like to demonize that side. And you understand that there are human beings who had no other choice and, you know, their society forced them into that situation. And, you know, he had no other choice but to get drafted and fight. And the story of how these young soldiers were treated, could you, you know, tell us a little bit about what happened there and the different policies also, not only of the Germans, but also of the Red Army, which was pretty horrific, and how these societies considered these men as completely expendable? Yes, well... That was shocked that the real World War II, it's not quite what we saw in the American movies. It uh, 
Right. The main scene was the the Russian front, or those both sides put their best troops there, and they were just ruthless with expending them. Uh, Hitler didn't care about the individual soldiers. The same attitude that Napoleon had that you know soldiers are meant to be killed, um, and the Russians were even more ruthless with them. There's a famous story when uh, General Eisenhower, the head of the uh, the Allied forces, finally got to meet up with Marshal Zhukov, the Russian. Uh, commander uh, in chief to map up their strategy, and by then things were going pretty well. The Germans were retreating all over, and he said, uh, "So, what do you do about minefields when when you come where the Germans have mined something?" And Zhukov said, "We march through them." Uh, so that's it. The boys are just sent sent to walk through this, and and the, the mines are disabled by being blown up by blowing up young men. Um, and that's. Uh, that's a common theme. And again, I think it goes back to the idea that a society needs its women to reproduce its population. Uh, so the women are more are more precious. And uh, um, even if you lose a lot of your people, uh, Germany lost you know, a lot of both men and women, uh, but considerably more men. Um, and yet, I think the population recovered fairly fast. Um because um, uh, uh, you know the women can can have babies uh, and and produce it. That's that's the limiting the rate determining step, as you as you call it. Right, and you know you you mention in the book as well that men have to earn their manhood. You know we we don't have uh, a saying "be a woman," but we do have the saying "be a man." Yeah. Uh, and you give this quote uh, by Stephen Locke. Uh, that says that, you know, manhood, the the definition is that man needs to produce more than he consumes. That's that's quite a burden, right? That that yes. comes with a lot of uh, responsibility. So yeah. why is it that men need to earn their manhood? Okay, um, why it worked this way, I don't fully know that, but it fits with the, the provider role thing that, uh, right. again, what I've been thinking recently that one of the keys to the male is uh, you don't just take care of yourself. You've got to produce more, produce enough to feed yourself and presumably uh, a woman and children. Um, and even if they get some food themselves, they, they get some from you and, and from the protein. So that was sort of the essential foundation. Uh, yes, a woman goes up and she or a girl goes up and she automatically becomes a woman. But in many societies, to be a man is something that you have to earn and have to defend. Um, interesting research on that that I cited to uh, um, you know, what would cause a person to feel I'm not a man anymore or I'm not a woman anymore. And for the woman anymore, they couldn't even imagine. You know, maybe she had a sex change operation. That's the only thing they could think of. But for a man to feel he's not a man anymore, maybe he lost his job and so he can't provide for his family or he's uh, dishonored in some way. So the the, the woman status, uh, the adult status is, is automatic. I think this actually was a, a big source of conflict when women started moving into the men's sphere and into the, the companies and organizations and so on. The old masculine cultures was respect had to be earned. And mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. hanging around with those who still existed when I was young and there'd be a lot of put downs and, and so on. And so you had Amazing. to really fight to earn that. respect so that you wouldn't be uh, mistreated like that. But there was never enough respect to go around. Uh, women came in 
they were outraged to be treated like that because women had always been treated that you're entitled to respect uh, and then to be disrespected. And I think the early men weren't trying to oppress them, which is what the, the feminists thought. Uh, and we were just thinking, well, this is the way the women want to be treated the same as the men. So we'll find something about them to, to, to pick on. Um, but uh, it was the, the unwillingness to accept it. It's made organizations a lot nicer, I have to say. Whether they're more effective, I'm not sure. It's made them nicer that everybody is entitled to, uh, entitled to respect. But it loses one of the traditional motivating aspects of respect, which you have to achieve and behave ethically and, and so on to earn respect. Uh, and you don't necessarily get it until uh, until you've achieved achieved something. Right. So on that note, you know, we do have this narrative today of masculinity is toxic. What do you think are some of the dangers for society in feminizing men? Well... Um, again, men have created most of the civilizations and, and created uh, the institutions that, that fill them. Um, what will happen if we uh, emasculate the, the men and make them more like women? Um, I mean, the, the toxic masculinity idea is just another bullying slogan uh, trying to help, you know, the women who claim to speak for all women, but from what I gather, they don't really. Um, but to use that, it's extractive. You know, it's trying to get resources from men rather than produce them uh, themselves. Uh, if we make men more like women, we'll see less initiative, less creativity, uh, less uh, um, even the, the duty of a man to produce more than he consumes. Uh, maybe disappearing. I, I don't know how much to put into some of these trends, but like these young men who uh, who just stay home and play video games all the time. Uh, yeah. Apparently it's something of established pattern in, in Japan where people are talking about it, that uh, they, they basically never leave the apartment. Uh, their parents feed them and they spend all day online. And that's, that's satisfactory. Uh, that's perhaps... Uh, um, you know, that's not turning the man into the kind of woman that the feminists had in mind, uh, but uh, it, it may be what happens to the the male psyche. Um, right. Bringing up men to to feel that the educational system is against them, that ideology is against them. So now they, uh, I gather, men are still going to college in roughly the same numbers. The, the, the shift in college population is mainly due to increase in female students, not a decline in males. But there are arguments that the men are starting to turn away, not find it as, as useful or valuable. And, and plus, as people are pointing out in the in the university environment, the man here is sort of an unbroken stream of anti-male uh, propaganda. Uh, so it's, it's certainly not very welcoming. We see, too, that, that men really worked hard to open up their institutions to accommodate women thinking that we want to have both there. But as women take over, they talk about equality first. But when women become the majority, they don't say, oh, we now need to take care of men. We need to attract more men. Or something. My field of psychology is going through this right now. Um, you know, back in the 70s, the, the men who were running the show said, oh, we need to get more women into the field, have other perspectives, and 
and so on, and, and created it in graduate. And now women are the majority of students and PhDs, and I'm not quite sure about the professor yet, because some of us are still old, though, but uh, the younger ones, again, it's, it's more and more women. But I don't see anyone saying, we've got to reach out to get more men into the field. And actually, again, the creative innovations that brought the field to where it is are mostly done by men. Uh, and yet the concern for the, the field as a whole isn't there and certainly not uh, any sort of uh, you know, progress in terms of policy that uh, you know, the ideal would be 50-50, half men and half women. So uh, if the men are below 50%, we've got to get more men uh, into the field. Uh, the women don't seem to have that kind of uh, feeling or concern, and I'm not sure why. Uh, I, I would like to uh, <laughs> to take a, a guess here, but I think, you know, that at the heart of this is really the demonization of men. And granted, you know, some women have had really difficult experiences with men in their lives, and uh, it's understandable why they demonize masculinity the way they do. But I think on a collective level, uh, you know, th these ideologies are propagating um, and they're propagating in neighborhoods and uh, societies that uh, no one has really been traumatized, uh, but there's this kind of angry fervor uh, against men as if men are the enemy. And, you know, I would just say uh, to women listening that, uh, you know, men have a really hard uh, burden of being strong and being responsible and providing and, you know, competing with each other. Yes, they they know how to cooperate, but at the end of the day, they need to compete for status and earn their place in society. And, you know, I see in modern relationships and modern dating that women come up with these walls. Uh, you know, they're very uh, defensive already and almost aggressive. And, you know, I, I I look at, you know, the relationship that me and my husband had and like the first dates, I I won him over with the fact that I was uh, affectionate, uh, you know, without, uh, with, with, with no, uh, with no kind of uh, filter in terms of, you know, I, I, I need respect and I need, you know, a certain behavior in response, but I am not constantly accusing. I'm not constantly, you know, fearing. I realize that here's the strong man who can't open up with his friends. You know, he can't open up uh, with, uh, with people and he needs to have this really strong facade. And I think if women realize that, that, you know, you can, um, you can gain a lot more with that kind of feminine instinct, with a little bit of empathy um, and, and help men integrate their femininity. I think that there is a place for that. And women are certainly integrating their masculinity. You know, we are becoming more independent. We're competing more. We're going out into society and we're building careers. And that's part of our evolution. But on the other hand, you know, you want a man to still be a man while helping him integrate his emotions. And, you know, helping him with that one-on-one -on -one kind of more intimate uh, relational style. And I think most men uh, would be up for that, uh, but without the demonization on the other hand. And so there's nuance here, but I think that's a more sophisticated uh, approach than what we're uh, seeing now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you could say one of the impressive achievements of the, the women's movement is to 
take a society with a mild anti-female prejudice and change it to a strong anti-male. <laughs> right. And and we haven't really, the thing is, you know, we, we're saying anti-female and anti-male, but I don't think we've actually increased the value of femininity because these same feminists, when they see a stay-at-home mom, they're ruthless. You know, you're not helping us in our fight against men. And, you know, some women are are more masculine in their temperament. They're more competitive. And some women want to stay at home with children. And the fact that we're also not valuing that as a society, I think, you know, we need to get our values straight uh, overall. Um, I do, I did want to uh, circle back to monogamy because you say that marriages, unlike, you know, the feminist trope that marriages are this way of exploiting women and keeping women locked in marriage and uh, keeping them obedient to their husbands. Uh, you know, we have this uh, picture of the 1950s, so I guess it does come from somewhere. But, you know, throughout history, you're saying that marriages exploited men. Why do you say that? Oh, I, I don't know that I said that, that exploited men uh, in, in the sense that the man has to provide, but Really, it was more of a partnership than a one-way exploitation. If you look at the traditional farming family, and since farming started, most people have been farmers. It's not true anymore. But <laughs> uh, even a century ago, it was probably still true. Um, and the farming factor family, or the family farm, had to have a man and a woman because there were separate jobs that they did. Uh, if one of them died, it was just a disaster for the farm, and the other one would try to get a replacement spouse uh, as soon as possible. Uh, the hard outdoor work of plowing and so on was the uh, the man's work, storing the food and cooking and caring for people. The woman's making the clothes was a huge, uh, hugely important. <laughs> we all need clothes. Uh, and there weren't stores uh, in your traditional farming village. Uh, so the women had to make the clothes. And the men wouldn't know how to do that or wouldn't do it if they could. So it was really a lot of working together. <clears throat> and to depict marriage as mainly exploitative, I think, is, is misleading. Yes, it did make use of the male and institutionalize him into the provider role. Uh, but uh, with the farm, the man and the woman really worked, you know, not together in the sense of doing the same thing, but together in the sense of complementary jobs uh, to make the whole thing viable and to make it a success. Um, was there something, something you yeah, said no. a moment ago I wanted to comment on about our fight against men and the women's attitude. Okay. And it's something I reflect on recently. Women think men are or feminists especially think men are exploiting them and cooperating against them. I don't see any sign of that that would be scientifically valid. I suspect that men just biologically can't really view women as the enemy until they get into divorce court or something and then a particular woman. And, uh, but uh, to look at women in general as the enemy, so in a sense, there's this tribe of women led by some explicitly working to advance women's cause at the expense of men, trying to transfer resources and opportunities from the men, who must create them, to the, uh, to the women. But it's a one-sided fight. 
and all these things the women are accusing the men of doing, like misogyny. If you read about gender, you see that word literally means hatred of women. Again, I'm an old man. I, I, I have never known a man who hated women in general. I've known men who hated specific women. <laughs> for good reason, for good reason perhaps. For <laughs> right, but for hating women in general, no, I've never known a single one of them. I don't see any any sign or evidence of it. But maybe there are women who hate men, and that seems to be much more more common, and so on. And so the the, the, the feminist leaders are sort of projecting their own conspiring and hatred and so on, assuming men are doing these things. But I don't really think they are. I don't find any sign of uh, uh, of men. And especially if you allow that once certain traditions are established, people like to preserve the, the traditions and so on. And they say, well, men didn't let women into the men's universities for a long time, uh, which is true. But um, it was understandable because the women had never created any universities. Um, and they didn't show any interest in pursuing knowledge, which the, the men had for a long time. Uh, and finally, the women said, no, let us in. And, and then everyone was surprised. Oh, they did just fine. But it was understandable that given that, that they would have had the prejudice that, oh, it's probably not good for women. And uh, they weren't asking for it. And they certainly weren't developing uh, this kind of society or learned society or collecting information or, or creating colleges or universities of their uh, of their own. Yeah, you know, even in that uh, scenario, you know, if we're starting with those givens that you know, men at some point didn't allow women into universities. You know, seeing that and, you know, as a woman, how, what do you do with that? I don't think anger is the response. First of all, today, that's not our issue. But in anything, you know, uh, taking individual responsibility, if you want to develop, uh, you know, your intellectualism, no one is banning you from reading. No one is banning you from starting something and innovating. And I think, I think taking that individual responsibility is the most yeah. important thing. And instead of expecting society to, uh, you know, cater uh, to your needs uh, and to yeah. your desires, I think that's a much, uh, you know, a much much smarter way of going about yeah. it. And it's more collective responsibility than individual. Even is that again the women in their sphere, which started off equal to the men and could have done anything the men did. Uh, didn't, and they don't produce progress. They don't work together in large groups to share uh, information. It's one of the things I said in the book. The women's social orientation is toward the intense one-to-one -one intimate relationship, which is really valuable, and you know I love that, and the species depends on it. Uh, whereas the men are have more a, a larger network of shallow relationships, but culture will emerge from the larger network of shallow relationships because. You think of people sharing information that they, they found. Well, 20 different people finding information and pooling it, that's going to build a collective understanding faster than an intense one-to-one, -one, two people who you know, maybe intensely loving each other and sharing their information, but they still aren't, aren't, aren't going to get anywhere near as much. Right. I think that, you know, in terms of the evolution that we're talking about here, and if women do want to reach that kind of point, I think it's important, as you said, the collective responsibility of understanding that there are certain things that we still need to learn, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and get better at. And I don't think anger is the, the proper response here. Uh, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about the 
differences in men and women's sex drives and how this also, you know, ties in, as we said, to competition and uh, the male the male drive to compete and to get status, uh, to be mm-hmm. able to mate. Uh, but that also comes up uh, in monogamy, uh, you know, and these differences in uh, in sex drives and the and differing levels of sociosexuality and so on. So what are these differences and where do you see these differences clashing? Okay, uh, pretty well established that uh, men are more interested in women than having multiple sex partners. Uh, and the evolutionary psychologists say, well, that's a very straightforward point because uh, a woman can have one baby a year at most if she, regardless how many men she goes to bed with, but a man who goes to bed with a lot of different women can produce a lot of babies. So having multiple partners is a, is a viable strategy for men to improve their evolutionary footprint, uh, uh, but not so much for women. For women, you want to pick the high quality one um, more than that. Um, then, uh, I, I, th- and then I think it goes with, uh, uh, in evol- for competitiveness, the more the man is motivated by sexual desire, the more important it is, uh, to climb the status hierarchy because that improves his, his appeal to women and the range of potential partners that he could have. And in the past, even the number of, of partners that, uh, uh, that he could have. Um, we published a paper a couple of years ago. Uh, There's that Australian journalist who uh, had couples that she thought would be a great bestseller, keep diaries of their sex lives. Uh, and she thought this would be all sorts of racy, juicy scenes. Uh, but a lot of it was just the man begging for sex and the woman saying, no, no, no. And she said, well, it seems like women lose interest in sex once they settle into a relationship. And I asked my friends who are relationship experts, is this known in the research literature? And they said, it's not known, but we actually have data that could address it. They don't. They didn't know what the answer was, but they followed married couples for, for the first five years of their marriage. And it took a long time to analyze the data. And, and you know, it was a very complicated procedure. But anyway, uh, five years into the marriage, the man's sexual desire is pretty much the same as when he walked down the aisle, whereas the woman's on average has dropped significantly. Uh, and people say, well, what is it about marriage? Is it doing housework or you know, blah, blah, blah? Uh, but my my guess is that nature kind of turns up the female sex drive during the courting phase uh, because that's it. She becomes all different. And, you know, passionate love seems to be more of a human thing. I don't know that there's much evidence of it in, in gorillas or, or whatever. Uh, but it again, bonding the male to the female for period of time so that the children can get care. This was crucial to human evolution. So a whole bunch of things like having sex face to face instead of, uh, you know, doggy style the way most of the other apes do, you know, that improves the bonding because you can look into each other's eyes and, and kiss and all that. Uh, and I think an increase in the female sex drive during that helps the man think, okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe she's got her problems, but the sex is so great. Um, I, I just want to spend the rest of my life with her. Um, but biologically, once she gets him into the provider role, her, 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 her priority turns to the children and, and taking care of them. And so she's not as, as, as hot for sex as, as she was at, at that point. I speculate too, that in human evolution, 
women selected men for high sex drive, which is kind of ironic because now women are complaining about men's uh, sexual desire. But for the man to be willing to do this, again, no self-respecting gorilla is going to settle into providing food for his children and the mother of his children over a long period of time. Uh, but uh, for the man uh, to, to to put up with women. And, you know, some women are wonderful. I think my wife is kind of a saint. Uh, but others, clearly, you know, more of a pain in the butt. And, and nature wants them all to reproduce. <laughs> Uh, and so the man has to have a strong enough reason to put up uh, with these difficulties. And it was my impression from sex research, too, that men will do whatever it takes to have sex and not much more. Um, so whatever, wherever women set the standards, if it's taking her out to dinner once or if it's promising to spend his life supporting her, whatever that is, uh, the men will do that. And that's, again, a sign that, that the high sex drive um, is, is adaptive uh, in terms of making the men willing to make that commitment. Uh, David Buss made a comment, I always like that men and women complain about each other, but they shouldn't because they selectively bred each other. And, you know, right. if you're a man complaining about modern women, well, in a sense, you're complaining about your great-grandfather and who, who they chose to met with. But it also goes with women bred men a lot more than men bred women. This goes with the twice really? as many ancestors, uh, and just being more choosy about who you go to bed with. Uh, mm, women are much nice. more choosy in, in, all, in all aspects. And so uh, the traits of the modern male were very selectively bred to the extent that women had choice. They didn't always have choice, of course, uh, but often they did. Um, and, uh, and so high sex drive would probably be one of the things that would make the man more willing to make the commitment and and honor the commitment uh, long enough for the, the the children to become somewhat self-sufficient. Right. You know, I think if we take that at face value, things can seem a bit grim because, you know, if a man's sex drive, you know, stays pretty much the same and a woman's sex drive, you know, kind of falls off the cliff five years in, then what do you do about that, Right. And I think there is a, a, some research, you know, coming up uh, these days around attachment theory and how that relates to sex and relationship satisfaction uh, in, uh, you know, in marriage. And, you know, as we know, women's sex drive is much more related to emotional intimacy. You know, that's what women get from it uh, at a certain point. And I think, you know, as you said, the bonding at the beginning, the excitement, the novelty is very strong. But at some point, it's a, it's a way of maintaining the bond and oxytocin is involved here. And I think that, you know, to understand that a woman needs that emotional intimacy can help a lot of couples kind of bridge the gap because, you know, I don't think it's realistic for a woman to expect her man to go with you know, zero sex or sex once a month. You know, obviously there are different times in life and uh, different periods, but still, you know, we've made a commitment to, you know, love each other and to, you know, um, respect each other's needs in the sexual sphere and beyond. But I do think that on the other hand, men do need to understand the female uh, sexual psychology and the fact that, you know, feeling secure, feeling loved, feeling cared for, feeling respected are kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're first like the, the starting points that we need 
And that emotional intimacy can get you laid, you know, yeah. if you're, if you're willing, if you're understanding uh, yeah. that kind of psychology, I think uh, we're, a lot is lost in translation. So I hope, I hope that it gives uh, people a little bit of hope because sometimes, you know, when we look at things in a, the evolutionary lens, things seem kind of as if they're never going to, uh, to match. Yeah, well, they match well enough. It's, it's, well. <laughs> it's, it's been it's, working so far. Thing, yeah. yes. <laughs> There's another line in that, that Joyce Benenson paper we mentioned earlier and, and, yeah. and him about uh, um, the women's orientation toward safety. Uh, and right. they say a lot of women say they sleep better when they have a man sleeping with them. Um, and they don't know why, uh, but it goes with feeling safe if you're in the primordial forest uh, sleeping in a small hut or even outdoors or whatever. You're exposed to the animals and elements and so on. And just having a big man there would make you feel safer. Um, so that's one thing. I love that. <laughs> For women, uh, possibly sleep better. No, absolutely. I think, you know, if we understand this deeper psychology, we can really understand each other. And I think just dispel a lot of this noise that we are seeing in the pop yeah. culture today because uh, it's not helpful. Uh, and I think that, yeah, right. you know, we uh, want to get along. More generally, as I said, throughout history, this idea of men and women as enemies, this is sort of a, a very distorted uh, feminist-inspired picture. It's part of rationalization and partly a, a political uh, basis. Men and women have been partners, have gotten along pretty well together over long periods of time. And uh, I think uh, we could appreciate each other's contributions and get along better. It might do better than this uh, antagonism and accusation and hostility. Absolutely. Thank you, Roy. All right. Thanks, Ronnie.